Hello and welcome to Humans Beyond Resources, an HR podcast by Reverb where we cover topics from culture to compliance. Reverb believes that every decision a leader makes reverberates throughout the organization, from hiring your first employee to training your entire workforce. We believe in building healthy, inclusive cultures that engage your team. I'm your host, Sarah Wilkins. Welcome back to part two of supporting neurodiversity in your organization with Vanessa Laughlin, Brett Green, and Dr. Robin Ballard. How, as people leaders, can we support neurodiversity in our organizations? And maybe I'll start with Dr. Ballard and and see what, you know, thoughts you have. Sure. Yeah, I think it it depends a lot on the, on the different manifestations. So what are the sorts of people you're dealing with? What are their strengths and weaknesses? It is very typical within um, folks say on the autism spectrum or with ADHD to have real strengths and weaknesses, like to have a more um, spiky profile of things that they're good at and things that are difficult for them. So like we've talked about working memory problems in folks with ADHD. With folks on the spectrum, it's often around processing speed. So they might just need a little more time to get there, but they're going to get there or they're going to go do the project in a new or different way. Um, potentially one that solves a problem no one else could solve. They often need a little more time and space to do it. Um, they also really benefit from super clear communication because one of the difficulties that's at the core of autism is around social communication, is difficulties understanding abstraction, metaphor, and kind of getting the gist of things. So you may feel, for example, as a supervisor, you've been pretty clear saying, you know, someone asks you like, well, when is this due? And you go, oh, you know, sometime in the next week or two. And that might be fine for a lot of your folks. They may either know you and know what that really means is by the end of next week. Or they might get the gist of like, well, you know, kind of infer, well, the quarter ends at this point, so I know to do it by then. That may be devastatingly complicated to someone on the autism spectrum who really needs you to say Friday at 5 p.m., right, and have that level of clarity. Otherwise, they may not be able to put the pieces together on it themselves. Um, So depending on the profiles of the folks you're working with, the accommodations are going to look different. Um, So starting with learning a little bit about these different conditions and then having direct conversations as best you can about, okay, where where are your strengths, where are your weaknesses? Um, Often for both ADHD and autism, one of the superpowers is often hyper-focus and hyper-intensity. They can take really deep dives on topics and get really, really into things in a way that neurotypical folks will just kind of go, okay, I've I've learned enough. And no, the folks with ADHD or autism are still going. Um, So there are times when you can really pull in those strengths and other times you really have to work around some of the weaknesses. Yeah, thank you. Um, Vanessa or Brett, anything to add there? Yeah, I like almost started clapping when Robin (laughs) brought up the spiky profile. I encourage anyone who's not already very familiar with that term to Google it. (laughs) You will get some really, really interesting content, articles, videos, et cetera. So the spiky profile, it's it's a really beautiful um, way, I think, in terms of a visual to have this idea of like, you know, who's sort of average or who's middle of the bell curve. And then to realize that all of us, to some degree, have strengths and weaknesses. And for some of us who are neurodivergent, those can be even more extreme. So what that can look like is for some people, it can mean that, like to just piggyback off the example from Robin, if for a topic that they're very interested in, maybe it's what they do every day at work, or maybe it's a special project, they might go so deep into this subject that they might spend, you know, an evening dedicated to it or work day, you know, they might kind of move other things aside to prioritize it. And in that 
element, you know, in, you know, in that environment or that sort of state rather of hyper-focus, they're able to come up with create new ideas, creativity. Um, sometimes it's all about, you know, just even producing at a higher, you know, just really faster and more. Um, I remember I used to write papers and it would either take me like 10 hours to write a page or I could write 10 pages in an hour, right? So there's sort of like nothing in the middle. And I think that when, as a manager and as a leader, if you can not only from the standpoint of supporting the difference in your organization, but frankly, taking advantage of it. It's a question that we ask new hires and we ask again and again in people's first, I would say six months to a year. And we even bring it up over time because things can change or people can learn more about themselves. But we ask them, you know, what are you, what do you really not like to do? I'm going to use it. Robin again, use the metaphor. What's like kryptonite? Like, what is it like the closer you get to it? It's just sort of like, oh God, no, thank you. I'm, you know, having a reaction to this. But we also say, what are your tennis balls, right? What are the things that you're, the example is like a lab or uh, like I have a black lab. And if tennis ball is in the room, he hears the word tennis ball. If somebody like, you know, if he sees it, especially he will be laser focused on that until he gets to chew on it, play with it, play fetch. So we ask people, what are those things that you're not only naturally drawn to where you don't mind doing, but the things that you love and you're passionate about. And when you apply that mindset consistently of not only supporting people to do the work that maybe they just have to do to get things done, giving them more than one way to, let's say, enter their time into a time tracking system. But at the same time, you're always having that mind of how can I really assign um, projects? How can I, you know, you know, support um, role, roles and responsibilities and org design? And if you're doing that in a way to optimize the strengths, I mean, that's, that's not only a competitive advantage, but it also just makes for a much more pleasant and inclusive work environment as well. Well, just kind of to continue with what Vanessa was saying, you know, in, in that type of scenario specifically, let's say one of the kryptonite things is writing reports. A lot of times um, us neurodivergent folks think better verbally. And if we had a partner that, um, you know, somebody else on our team or somebody else in the company that they actually love writing reports or organizing or putting those things together. And we could talk to them about it. They could put the information down and then we could just clean it up. For example, if, if it would take me five hours to write that report that I'm expecting isn't gonna be very good because I know I don't have the parts of my brain to do that really well. And I my rejection sensitive dysphoria. So I'm worried about my manager, you know, how, how it's gonna receive. And I, I spent five hours on that. Think of that versus if I could talk to somebody for a half an hour that really helped put that together and then spend another 15 to 30 minutes finishing that up. And those extra four hours, not only was I not spending it stressed out, freaked out, you know, worried about my competency and all that, but that four hours now is being used for things that are my tennis ball that I am really good at that do move the company forward. So the company is actually winning more by having me have that partner than having me try to figure it out or be in an environment where I'm afraid to share that, well, I'm not really that good with writing reports. And then I have a manager come back and go, nobody likes writing reports. And it's like, yeah, but it, I don't have the same parts in my brain, which is different. And just, you know, general things that you know, my, might just be kind of common sense things for companies is um, having ERG groups for um, neurodivergent folks if you don't already, um, having training or coaching for managers or 
for the neurodivergent folks. And I think just having that education and these conversations where people are experiencing that it's just part of what we do, <laughs> then, then it's not a thing. Then it's not this disorder that needs an accommodation where it's kind of like asking dad for the keys when you're 16 to go take the car. It's just like, oh yeah, okay, well, if you're dealing with those things, what can we do that would be better? What ideas you have? Or here are some things that we don't for some other folks. Is that something that that would help you? And again, goes back to universal design that these are just good human things that, that you know kind of help everybody. I want to bring something up that we've talked about, but not directly, which is stigma. And you know, I, I've even seen in the chat and some of the direct messages, people saying, I, I didn't get a diagnosis until I was older either. Or, you know, my my spouse or my husband is, is going through the process right now. And it's, you know, really interesting. And so wherever people are either, you know, feeling like they identify as maybe neurodivergent all the way to having a formal diagnosis, having it be maybe part of their family, their children, versus the folks who might say, you know, I just want to be an ally. Like, this is not a group I identify with, but how can I make a difference? I think. I want to kind of speak to the people who would put themselves more in the ally category and say one of the biggest things that you can do to support others in your organization is just to start to find big and small ways to chip away at the broader stigma that we have within our society. Quick personal story. Um, when I uh, shared with my mother, who's kind of older from South America, different culture, I initially told her that my son had received a diagnosis last year of not only being uh, having ADHD like his mom, but being autistic, her first response was, no, 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 that's, that's not, that's not really a thing. And that definitely doesn't apply to my wonderful, you know, brilliant grandson. And with love in her heart, she was expressing a viewpoint that is, you know, really playing into that internalized and externalized stigma that this is, that this is not just different. This is bad. This is only negative. This is something to be hidden. This is something to be ashamed about. And if you think about it, we actually used to, you know, societally refer to people who wore glasses as four eyes and a nerd. And I mean, can you imagine that happening now or thinking that they were like wicked because they were left handed? Right. So we have historically over time had the difference is suppressed, <laughs> minimized. And then we sort of say it exists, but then it's it equals something bad. And then we kind of move on to like it's kind of actually neutral on its own. And maybe we should just have at least a few left-handed scissors in every, you know, every classroom and not you know, sort of demonize somebody because the reality is if you have a switch hitter on your baseball team, that might actually give you a competitive advantage to have righties and lefties. So I think that what we're in right now, um, and I, I appreciate Brett put the comment in the, in the chat about just the increase in diagnoses. That doesn't mean that more people are necessarily necessarily being born with these conditions, but it might just mean that we have a higher level of awareness. And as this sort of coming out exists and this happening, what we're seeing is different reactions. And I mean, I literally have said to people before, yeah, you know, they're saying like, oh, I'm so ADD today, meaning I'm so distracted and spacey or whatever. And I'm like, why? Well, I actually have ADHD friends, you know? And they're like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. And or I've even had people say, oh, don't say that about yourself. I'm like, no, it's literally a 
it's good to know if you're going to have that kind of level of self-awareness. And so I, I would just, you know, we, we've given some examples already, but, you know, two that come to mind would be normalizing conversations about differences in sensory experiences, differences, communication preferences and styles, differences in... A lot of the stress we go through is because we might produce a great outcome, but then we get what we feel like is criticized or or judged or poked at about how did we get that answer? You know, it's like, well, how did you do it? It's like, I'm not good at taking that, putting it down here, writing it so you can, you know, that communication translation is really bad. But if it's a better outcome than you were getting or than you expected, you know, work backwards from that and, and, and really value that. Because one thing, again, that makes us really challenging is most folks who are neurodivergent are really high IQ. So there's areas where we overproduce or people just, you know, working together, you just unconsciously pretty quickly go, you know, we make these assessments and, oh, that person's smart or they're good at this or good at that. And so if we see that someone is overproducing in certain areas or smarter than us in other areas, but they can't remember where they're supposed to put the cups in the break room. Yeah, thank you. Ideas to help uh, support neurodivergent team members as we work in a virtual world with Zoom calls, conference calls, Slacks, you know, all the, I mean, Vanessa, you hit on this earlier, right? The distractions of the Slacks and the emails and the, you know, things that come up. So any kind of um, tactical or, you know, examples that you would recommend? Yeah, I'll start off with a few. Um, number one, I, I use a kind of a clinical term to, to reference that there are certain technologies that are contraindicated to a, uh, my brain functions and my sensory experience of the world. So there's a reason why I do not use, no longer use Facebook. I no longer use Instagram and why every single sound and haptic and vibration on my phone, which by the way, it takes a long time to turn them all off on an iPhone. Um, are generally in the off mode. And the reason is, is because of that, you know, Robin was talking about one of the features of ADHD and, and, and other forms of neurodivergence is, you know, you might, some people might think, oh, it's distractibility. And it's more that when we get the stimulus, we're like, you kind of Brent mentioned that squirrel, right? And so I think one of the things is that people who are maybe neurotypical might think, oh gosh, I like to have these alerts. I like to have you know, a little flag come up. I like a noise, I like a this, but for somebody else, and again, this depends on the individual, but broadly speaking, this is going to be consistent with ADHD. It's not that we have a lack of attention. Sometimes it says attention deficit. It's that we almost have too much attention and we're too easily, you know, pulled into things. So I, I on my team, we don't use Slack and we try to minimize emails. Um, we also try to minimize direct live meeting time and we save for, save the time that we're actually working not asynchronously, so working live together for sometimes more of the fun stuff or brainstorming or there's different, a fit for purpose. So we use, uh, uh, people use different version of this, whether it's Notion or a, a Google Doc or um, Mural, I think is one of them, but those are all tools that allow you to actually kind of have a virtual whiteboard. So imagine we're all back in the office and we have in the hallways giant whiteboards where we can add stickies, we can put little magnets with things and what have you. And that that is actually, again, an example of universal design because it serves the similar purpose from a communication and update task assignment and uh, knowledge and collaboration that you might have with Slack or email, but it 
it does actually force you to have a bit more precision of language. You wouldn't expect someone to go up the whiteboard, a shared whiteboard in a in a conference room, let's say, in a company and write gibberish on there and have ex expect anybody to know what, you know, or be imprecise in language because you're not necessarily going to be able to say, what did you mean by that, right? But in, in email, constantly we're writing things and sending things that are kind of not really, you know, thought out, so, so, so to speak. And so we have found that that, and that is an example of a tool, again, this sort of whiteboard approach works a lot better. And Slack, if we were to use it, I, we would probably just use it for fun social stuff, you know, connect, the connection part of working with other people. But, you know, knowing that something that might be a useful reminder to one person in your organization might feel like you're drowning in distractions and, and impulses that you can't look away from. And that can just be exhausting and not effective. To, to use an example to be more specific to autism spectrum disorder, um, eye contact is traditionally very hard, very confronting for folks on the spectrum. So minimizing the time that they're going to be doing video calls or required to have their camera on or made to stare at a bunch of faces can be really important too. I thought of one more thing. Actually. Oh yeah. <laughs> in the pitch for in the pitch for uh, asynchronous processes, even when you are working in the same time zone, even when you are working, you know, maybe down the hall, is that it allows people of all flavors of neurodivergence to manage their energy a bit better. So you can have, you know, um, I, I think one of the best examples from um, an ADHD executive, specializing executive coach I work with, a woman named Molly Lentz, she, she uses this example of trying to surf as a surfer when there are no waves. You just can't surf when there's no waves. And so you sort of, how can I be most productive during the times and get the most, you know, experience surfing when the waves are actually, you know, actually big, big enough to enjoy. And so by creating an environment with, with a combination of asynchronous and, not, and, you know, live collaborative tasks and responsibilities, what you're doing is you're actually letting people of all different kinds match their energy to the task at hand so that they're doing the sort of more difficult for them specifically work at a time of day or in a day where maybe they didn't have a lot of meetings and they could do a deep focus. And so that's a very great example, too, of universal design, where we, in our organization, we always ask the question, can this be done asynchronously? And if it can, we're working from a, a system design and an org design, process design standpoint to enable that. And that that bias has only served us well for, for many, in many different ways. That's great. Thank you. And, and Brent, I have something to add. What, what we've been talking about a lot right now are our systems. And so if we just think about that, that one thing that can be really helpful, there's three different pillars look at people on, and one of them, as far as behaviorally, is fewer steps, systems, and anchors. And we're all making up systems consciously and unconsciously, leaving your keys by the door is a system to not forget. So um, specifically around what we're talking about with email and Slack, and I've talked to neurodiverse folks that are dealing with five different communication systems in their company and driving them, you know, crazy. So the good news about understanding this is executive function, we're working memory, those kind of things, is that we can create some systems around that as much as we can as an employee um, to design, you know, our time and our day of, you know, when are we going to check those things? Is there a way I could only check those things two or three times a day? And on a company level, it would be awesome if that was kind of created for being like, hey, we, we're only expecting you to like pick a time before 11 a.m. and pick a time after 3 p.m. to do these things so that you don't feel 
like you missed something because you took two hours to answer something on Slack and someone gives you a snarky comment of uh, neurotypical folks, that's like having two gallons in the morning where you have 10 and by 11 a.m. or 12, we're out because every decision, every everything with organizing, planning, working memory is taking some of that away. Um, if you're familiar with the spoons concept, you know, with, with autism, similar way to look at that as, you know, by noon, we're low or out, which can create things like irritability later in the day or defensiveness or not being able to do these things that if we had a system to do them, knowing when we're pressure in the morning or at a certain day, then we can try that. If it doesn't work, try something else, but systems and anchors and fewer steps, you know, help us to retain some of that or, or extend how much executive function work and memory tool we have. That's great, thank you. And Lauren, you can unmute please and ask your question. Great, thank you so much. Appreciate this conversation and for all of your insights so far. Um, kind of staying in that same like fully remote virtual workspace, which is our company, but we're a consulting firm. So our consultants are employees of the company, but they're often working on with clients virtually. And like, how do you effectively manage those external relationships where you have less control because they're entering someone else's environment and we're technical writing companies. So all of our team is like highly skilled. And then you kind of add on these layers of neurodiversity. And then you, we don't have as much control about what's happening in those external environments as what we can do to support them internally. So is there anything that we can do to better support them when they're working in those external situations? Um, how do we just build a better support system for those folks so they can thrive uh, not only when they're interacting internally, but that they can also thrive externally as well? I'll take a stab. So thank you, Lauren. Great question. I am a recovering, self-professed recovering uh, management consultant. So I totally understand the, you know, working and collaborating with teams, managing teams, managing client relationships, being on-site at a client and needing to kind of, you know, as in client services, you you try your hardest to adjust and adapt to the culture and the norms of, of, of the client. That's part of what we think of as good client services delivery and adaptability, flexibility of a consultant. I think you actually mentioned the two things about thriving and supporting your individuals kind of when they're on, you know, at home base versus when they're on site. And I love that you are already understanding that they're, those are two very different things. So I continue to keep, encourage that mindset. And I would just say having, um, I think the relationship with manager and colleagues and having openness in that and a like, you know, again, trying to dial down the stigma at a base level and then also making accommodations and communications that can be a source of a respite. It's a little bit like students who are in um, a school in public school and maybe they don't have an IEP, they don't have accommodations. It's even more important to have changes and, and support at home because that's where they can go and they can recharge, so to speak. Same thing for a consultant who is on site on the client site and then maybe is, has a, something to come back to, even if that coming back to is a virtual environment. And then the second thing I think is that there is a there is a role that an organization, particularly from the engagement manager, whatever you call that main client, you know, liaison who might be or how I'm not sure how the consulting firm is structured, but there's this sort of third party advocacy for your consultants that the company can provide upfront. Um, with, for example, SOPs, right, standard operating procedures. So to kind of piggyback around Brett saying, you know, uh, as a company, you know, saying things like maybe there's two times a day before 11 a.m. and then after three, 
that certain communications get checked. If you're laying that out in your you know, initial statement of work or in your client agreement or expectations or how you even onboard a new client, then you're not going to put your consultant in a position of having to make it like, this is special for me that I, it's just the way we do things at company consulting firm XYZ, right? That's just part of all culture. That's what just works better. So I think that looking and sort of understanding the ways, again, won't that, that you can, you know, in advance advocate for certain expectations and certain standards of how that client relationship is going to work. Again, you're not just going to benefit your neurodivergent um, employees. You're going to really benefit everybody. So kind of like keeping an eye out for those and prioritizing and and, you know, if you ask your team, if you ask your consultants, they will tell you, <laughs> they will tell you the things to prioritize is like, these are the top five, three to five things that if we could make standard in the way we operate with all of our clients, put it out there up front. I mean, I, that I could make a biz, big, big difference just, you know, right from the get-go. Thank you, Vanessa. Dr. Bauer? Yeah. I can think, yeah. So thinking about <clears throat> prepping your folks on, on your side of it too, um, one of the most common comorbidities for all forms of neurodiversity is anxiety. So um, I don't know the stats for ADHD, but for autism, something like 60% of adults with autism also have a co-occurring anxiety disorder, um, which absolutely feeds into how they process information, how they see the world, how they're going to be able to interact with people. Um, and one of the things, so anxiety tends to cause two things, avoidance and rigidity. Um, and so we want to, as much as possible, help like pre-planning and going after and approaching instead of avoiding around the things that are going to be difficult. Um, so we know that rigidity is also a feature of autism. Um, and so that's, that's harder to work on. Like they may still need things to be certain ways, but one of the things you can do in advance is help prepare people for, here's some of the ways they might react. Okay. If they seem happy with it, here's what you might do. If they're not happy with it, if you can't really tell, how might you ask? And sort of walking through and role-playing and scripting some of those things in advance can be really useful for folks too. Um, you know, even something as simple as if they have to physically go to a new location, can you do that the day before so you know where you're going and you take that piece that is causing anxiety out of the equation so that you're leaving people with as much energy to bring to the actual interaction that they can. So um, some of the prep work in advance, even if it seems small, can make a really big difference not only in terms of how much anxiety they're actually experiencing, but their experience of your support of them going, okay, I know these things are difficult and we want to help you with this. Anything parting thoughts from our guests? Start by saying, thank you for being here. I don't know from, you know, your names, obviously, who identifies, has a diagnosis, you know, maybe lives with somebody who's neurodivergent and who is thinking, I'm really just here to understand open my mind and in any way possible be an ally. I also don't know how many folks in the audience are like, I think I'm going to find someone like Dr. Robin Ballard, a psychologist to, you know, help me understand what, what is the nature of my, you know, me and the way I show up in this world. I remember I've had the pleasure of knowing Robin for a long time. And when I, I finally got my, my formal diagnosis, it was like, you know, imagine like having a piece of paper like this answers so many questions. And this is just such a great starting point. But I remember, I think it was either you or me or together, Robin, we talked about it's like going your whole life with the wrong instruction manual. And then all of a sudden somebody gives you the right instruction manual. And you look at the numbers on the front and you look at the numbers like on you as like a robot or whatever. And you say, these numbers actually match. And oh my gosh, isn't it good to know? the operating instructions for me and as an individual, because gosh, it, life just gets a lot richer and better. And 
uh, more interesting. And so if you are going to benefit from that kind of knowledge or you're going to benefit from an organization where you can advocate change, whether or not you, again, identify as neurodivergent or not, just know that you're going to make a huge difference for many, many different people in your life. And it's a worthy endeavor. So just thank you for being here, I guess would be my closing thought. Thank you. I, I would totally agree with that and add that these differences we've been talking about today can be amazing. And it's really worth tackling the challenges that come with it to see what strengths emerge and having yeah. just a diversity of thought, opinion, style in your organizations does over time make them more flexible, more adaptable, and better able to serve a wide variety of people. Really worth tackling these challenges um, for all of your employees and for the, the folks you work with. Thank you. They kind of covered it. <laughs> thank, thank you for, for you know having me here and I, I appreciate the opportunity and um especially you know i'm learning so much from vanessa and dr ballard also which is fantastic and i guess just like what we talked about earlier a little bit of education and um loving kindness or grace goes a, a long way in creating systems and dr ballard brought up anxiety is such a prevalent experience for all of us that even just having that question at your company or with people of like what kind of things you know do you have anxiety about around your job if, if they feel safe enough you know to share it to understand what can be created because little things like a lot of us sponge and then we go away and we process and then we decide or answer and so if we're in half hour meetings where people are throwing the talking stick around and it's like, okay, what do you think about this? What's the answer? And they hand it to you. That's, you know, that's a nightmare for us. But if we understand things like that and have different processes built around it, I guess Vanessa kind of went into this, just one simple process. And, and all of a sudden that's, that's a huge exponential change. So a couple small changes that are just informed by a little education around how people are experiencing things differently, neurodivergent or otherwise, can just create some really wonderful, strong, more powerful systems in the company that make people feel more fulfilled, want to work there, love being there, and great for everyone. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans Beyond Resources. Visit ReverbPeople.com to find free resources, subscribe to our newsletter, and connect with our team. If you haven't already, subscribe to stay up to date on all of our upcoming episodes. We look forward to having you as part of our community.